Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think the key to being able to direct is, are you connecting in a tangible way that you can communicate and translate in space and time to the work? Be honest with yourself when you're approaching texts about what you understand and what you don't understand. Because if you lie, then five weeks later, you're going to be in trouble. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I am your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, I want to know whose voice we just heard. But first, congratulations! Your book was officially published earlier this week. The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, is now available in stores. And since this is a show about the creative process, I'm curious... Do you feel like the stage that you're at now, which I guess could be described as doing publicity for the book, is calling for new and different creative tools and techniques? Yes, I think that's definitely true. Uh, the the bringing the horse to market phase uh, <laughs> calls for some new ways of thinking about creativity. Like a lot of other writers, I can get a little hung up on like, ugh, got to market this thing, got to self-promote. It's so, mm. you know, it's sort of shameful. Am I bragging? You know, what am I doing? Um, but I do think the more that you can think of it as a creative process and a creative process of letting people know who might be interested in this material, yeah. that this thing exists, yeah. the better. And I say that as much to myself as to the listeners, because that's something I am still working on. I think there's a mass email that I forgot to send about some, <laughs> something I'm going to do with promoting the book. But, you know, writing a book and marketing a book, those are very different things. Just like being an interviewer and an interviewee are really different. Yeah. I am lucky enough that there's like quite a bit of press attention on the book and there's hey. lots of people who want to interview me to talk to me about the book, which is really lovely. And so one way that my creativity has been engaged here is um, not giving rote answers to questions. You know, um, It might not be the first time that I have heard that question, but it is mm -hmm. the first time that that person has asked that question. Many of their listeners or readers, it's the first time they're going to read or hear that question. Question. And so, you know, part of the job is trying to figure out a way to answer it truthfully, but also newly every time, which is a yeah. challenge. All right. So back to today's interview. Who did we hear from at the top of the show? We heard from one of our two guests this week. That was Whitney White, who's a really wonderful director, and she is currently helming a play called On Sugarland. And the other guest who you'll be hearing a lot more from is that play's author, Alicia Harris. Awesome. So I've heard and I absolutely loved the conversation. Thank you. There are a couple of things that I was curious about 
that maybe we can address quickly before we get to the interview. All right. So a play is a, <laughs> a theater. What is that? How long do you have, June? How long do you have? <laughs> so first, there's mention of two of Alicia's earlier plays. What to send up when it goes down, great title, and Is God Is. So what should listeners know about those plays? Well, one thing that listeners should know is that they're both really great and they're very <laughs> different from one another. But what they have in common and have in common with On Sugarland, her new play, is the way that Alicia Harris is willing to throw a bunch of different forms, ideas, and genres into a blender. So <laughs> Is God Is, which really put Harris on the map when it premiered at Soho Rep a while ago, it's a revenge play. It's a Jacobean melodrama. It's a Sergio Leone spaghetti western. You know, it's a biblical allegory. It's, it's all sorts of different things at once. Um, <laughs> but that was very very much a traditional play in many ways. What to send up when it goes down, on the other hand, is a work made in response to and meant to be performed in response to police killings of black people. That's the it that has mm. gone down. And it is really a ritual as much as it is a play. It's a self-invented ritual. It's one that's created by Harris. Sometimes it feels like sketch comedy. Sometimes it feels like a workshop or, or a community meeting or something. Sometimes it feels like a traditional play or even a religious ceremony. It's it's really wild and it keeps changing its shape on you. And that's, that's one of the things that it's doing because part of its point is to read think the relationship between spectator and theater and to create the kind of catharsis that the ancient Greeks were after and to think about how we think about police violence. Wow, that sounds amazing. Um, in the week that you recorded this conversation, the actors were close to the first pass of the text. So can you tell people like me who only know the theatrical process via the TV musical Smash what that means? <laughs> <laughs> the first pass of the text in this context just means they're about to do the first run through in rehearsal. You know, they're going to do the whole play from beginning to end. That's a really important part of the rehearsal process because, you know, you've been working on it as a series of kind of atomized components. You've been oh. staging the play. You know, you got the scripts in hand. You, you, you're not going to have the real set or whatever. But this is the first time they're really going to try to just do the whole thing at once to see what the shape of it is and, and what the high priority fixes are that needed to be done. Thank you for clarifying all that. I am super excited for everyone to hear this fantastic interview. But first, I believe you have some extra content for Slate Plus members. What will they hear? Yes, we are going to talk a little bit about what it's like to direct a play during the Omicron wave of the pandemic. How do you rehearse a play, which requires intimacy and vulnerability from the everyone, including the actors? How, you know, how do you do that when everyone is in masks? It's a tricky problem that demands really creative solutions. And so I thought, why not ask some great creative artists about it? Yeah, it really is a fascinating answer, too. And fortunately, it's incredibly easy to subscribe to Slate Plus. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from working and also from shows like The Culture Gab Fest and The Waves. To learn more about becoming a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Alicia Harris and Whitney White. Lucky Land Casino. 
Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Alicia Harris, Whitney White, thank you so much for uh, joining us this week on Working to Talk About Your Process. It's our pleasure. Thank you for having us. So you're in rehearsals right now for the new play on Sugarland. Alicia, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about the play, what, what it's about? Sure. So on Sugarland is about a community that lives in a cul-de-sac in the South. And the community is one that has been strugg- dealing for years with a war that's just been going on. People have been sent off to this war. They've died. So everyone there has a relative, a loved one, or themselves has been engaged in that combat and returned home. So it's about the ways that the people inside of this community are coming into themselves and staying connected to one another in spite of their challenges. Mm. And this is your first play in New York since What to Send Up When It Goes Down, right? That is correct. That play very much broke out of the frame of of mimesis or or literal representation. uh, And it's throwing a bunch of different forms together at once. It's a ritual. It's a community meeting. It's a workshop. It's a review. Uh, Do you feel like having gone through the process of doing that play has changed the way you think about your writing in, in ways that have helped give birth to this one? Yes, I think that what to send up when it goes down really encouraged me to be expansive in my thinking about what a piece of theater could be. Right. I mean, theater is ritual. We are gathered to call something into being. So what are the ways that any theatrical piece that I create has an awareness of the power of ritual? Um, What are the ways to sort of understand what the theater is? And, you know, there's something interesting that the, um, the choreographer said in one of our early meetings. He said, are we making theater or using theater? Mm. And that, to me, felt like such a profound statement and such a useful query as a person who works in the theater. What am I using the theater to do rather than think of myself as bound by um, normative theatrical constraints? Mm. And, and what were the origins of On Sugarland, and, and how long have you been working on writing it? On Sugarland started actually with someone in grad school saying to me, how do you feel about adapting Philoctetes? And I don't know if you know that play, but it's a Greek play that I had not read um, by Sophocles. And it's about a soldier who's marooned on an island um, while his fellow soldiers go off to the Trojan War. And he's marooned because he has this terrible foot wound that's weeping and he's constantly wailing about it and it smells bad and he's just unpleasant to be around. Um, But they end up getting a prophecy that they cannot win the war without him. So they have to come back and try to trick him into coming to the war. There's a deus ex machina and he ends up returning um, into battle with these folks. The play is very much about pain. It's about memory. And I was really interested in those themes. So I set about trying to adapt that play, but I was uh, having a hard time with it. It just felt like really bad 
bad theater. Like I was just trying to find my analogous version of each of the characters and I couldn't find a good reason for doing what I was doing. I didn't want to do like a black version of a Greek play. How boring. So, and other people have have done that sort of thing better than I could, to be frank. Um, So I had to change the assignment to writing the play I wanted to write having read Philoctetes. And I was really emboldened by the response to Is God Is. I felt like what I could do was move what I was thinking through, my, my own sensibilities through the prism of this play, like sort of filter it through what Alicia's interested in talking about and thinking about. From the first time I started writing it to when it's gotten on stage, it will have been nine years to your second question. So a really off and on, right? Um, But a really long process of sort of getting into the play, trying to work with it, maybe getting frustrated or feeling like the play was saying, it's not time, you need to give me some space, you need to go live some things in your life, experience some things, and then come back to me. And so, yeah, it will have been nine (laughs) years is that kind of process where you start working on something and then it kind of tells you, hey, I'm not I'm not ready to be born yet. You know, give me a little more time. Is that something that happens to you frequently or is that scary when that happens? You know, what's that experience like? So, yes, a play will say to me and I try to listen to it. Uh, no, this is not the right time or you, you better get moving. Like there are things inside of you that are churning and need to get out. And so you and I can be a, a tremendous asset to you in that way, Alicia. So come and write me. And it doesn't scare me. The only thing that gets kind of weird is when there's an outside pressure to be producing on a deadline. That's when it gets weird, when there are people who I think don't understand what it takes, the sort of psychic labor of creating a play. And in those instances, I often feel like, do you want a good play or do you want a fast play? Because you can't, you're not going to (laughs) get, they may not be the same things, you know? So I, I try to listen as best I can and not force it. Show up for the play, do the work, do the research, be rigorous. But also, if it's not coming, take a step back, work on something else, do something else. So uh, On Sugarland also pairs uh, you, Alicia, and you, Whitney, together again as writer and director. Uh, can you all tell me a bit about the origins of your collaboration as artists? I first encountered Alicia's work on the page, which is something I always say, and it, it excites me very much that that's how I met her. Um, and the first time I feel I met her was when I read Is God Is. I don't know if you've had the wonderful opportunity to read Is God Is on the page. It was her first play in New York that was produced and put up at Soho Repertory Theater Company under the direction of the incredible Tabi McGar. And um, the first time I read that play, it was such an unforgettable experience. Um, I am a person that believes that things come in and out of our lives at, at certain times for a reason. And when I found that play or when that play found me, you know, I feel like it just spoke to me on so many levels and voiced things that I needed to be voiced. And so I I just embarked on a journey of learning more. Who is this woman? And how is it that she's creating these worlds? And how is it that she's putting these women on the page and bringing them to life in such visceral ways? And so I went to see the production of Iskadis at Soho Rap. I was blown away by it. And Tabi, who was the director, who's also a friend of mine and, and a colleague from Brown Trinity University, was generous enough to introduce me to Alicia. And at the same time, I had met David, um, who's one of the artistic leaders at the Movement Theater Company, and they were going to produce Alicia's following play, What to Send Up When It Goes Down. And so I read that script and once again had such a visceral reaction and was so shocked. And so I said, well, this has to, I've got to find this woman because... 
when a play text speaks to you on so many levels like that, you've got to find a way to get close to the work or to make the work yourself. And and I had a, a phone call with Alicia and then we had this meeting in person and I was so just amazed by her grace, her intellect, her her sharpness, her keen eye, her very, very keen eye. And combine all that with these plays that were just speaking to black life in so many different ways. And and that was really how we met. And we started workshopping what to send up when it goes down. It went up in New York and then went up in DC and then went up in Boston and then went up in New York and then went up in New York again and then went up in New York again. So, I mean, we've had a very atypical experience with that play. Um, and now we are working on, on Sugarland, which is just, again, it's like, I think, these three play scripts of hers could be taught in a class. Just if you look at the breadth of the work there, there's not really any other writer working in so large a scope. So I do count myself very fortunate to be able to get my hands on the work and be a part of it. When I was more focused on directing than now, which now I'm mainly a writer, but, you know, the problem I always had when I was meeting people is that I knew their work because I could read it, you know, but what directors do is so intangible that if they haven't seen the work, how do they know to trust me or how do they know, how, how do they know that it's right to take that leap? So I guess there's a question for both of you, Whitney, um, what do you do in that circumstance to kind of tell a writer like, hey, I think our work would really connect and I really do know what I'm doing, even though you can't see it. And uh, uh, Alicia, you know, how do you know as a writer when to take that leap of faith in a director in their work? I think the key to being able to direct is, are you connecting in a tangible way that you can communicate and translate in space and time to the work? And I have to demonstrate that, and I do that a particular way. And if I'm reading a play and I can't do that, I shouldn't direct it. And I mm -hmm. think, like, because, again, even though directing can seem like such a behind-the-scenes job and no one knows what it is, it is a technical job. And there is a level at which it's like, you know, the spiritual kind of life of this play the writer puts in there. You've got to be able to put it up in space and time. And I think there are ways to honest, be honest with your if you're an artist, to our fellow artists out there listening, be honest with yourself um, when you're approaching texts about what you understand and what you don't understand. And then when you're meeting a writer, I find you just have to go all in if you want it. You know, you, you can't hold any ideas. You've got to give it up. You've got to be very front-footed about what you understand and what you think you want to bring to the piece. Because if you mm -hmm. lie, then five weeks later, you're going to be in trouble. And you've got to make sure that what you're interested in respects the writer's desires. You know, you might have a million ideas. That doesn't mean that writer wants to see them, you know? And you've got to make sure you're having a real connection to the piece. So I just try and be like as open-hearted about that as possible. It'll save you a lot of pain later. And sometimes you'll meet a writer and you won't have the same vision and that's okay. It's better to be honest about it. Yeah, totally. You know, I found that one thing that I did in the past that was sort of helpful on that front is to just say to the writer, like, I'm actually just going to describe your play to you. Like from like what, what I read in, in your play, I'm going to just describe it in as much depth as I can. And then you will, you know, by the end of this, we will know, you will know whether I'm the wrong person for it or, or, or not. And that's actually always often been um, like a really helpful way to approach it for me anyway. 
Just to affirm your strategy, Isaac, I think that's really smart, and that's the sort of thing that I'm interested in, is what the director heard when they read my play, what they think the story of the play is. Um, so with Whitney, I had the benefit of having worked with a close friend, of a colleague of hers from Brown, Tabi Magar. Tabi Magar and I had just come off of Is Goddess, so Tabi had intimate knowledge of how I work in a room. <laughs> she knows how I am, that I like to chime in. And I remember asking her, based on what you know about me as a writer, do you think Whitney and I will get on? Do you think this will work out? And she said yes. So I think if you can do some research and ask that, you know, of of people who know you intimately in process, is this going to work? And then what Whitney said is key. I think sometimes when you're a young artist, and I mean young, not just in terms of the number of years you've been on the planet, when you're new in your practice, you're just honored for an opportunity and you just want to take that opportunity and maybe you need to pay your rent. And I'm not judging anybody for that, but it's a very simple question that I've learned to ask myself. Do you want this? Are you excited about this play? It's very simple. You either are or you aren't. And I think if you're not, it's going to be a slog. I have to ask myself that question about plays I'm going to write, commissions people want to give. Do you want to write this, Alicia? Especially in Hollywood, you know? And I found that, young artists listening, if you're not into it, it's a kind of labor that just, it's the joy, the joy is gone. It's not writing to me, because writing for me is so connected to joy and to my own sense of this has to be written, this has to be in the world. So connecting to, like, do I want to do this? Um, some of the other things is just listening to my gut. How is this person, do they listen to me? Do they actually listen? Or are they just waiting for their opportunity to speak? Um, I know that I, as I said, I like to share. I have a vision. I work, you know, it's nine years with this play. So I'm not, I don't think it would go well for me to work with the sort of director who sort of, who wants to take the material and go off and do their own thing. I think that that's valid. And I think that there are writers who are like, you know what, take this play, have a blast. I'm not that writer. I'm pretty meticulous. I have pretty strong ideas. And it feels wrong to just hand someone a play and walk away. So I think it's trying to like, um, just be really frank about these things and, and tell, you know, the person that I'm speaking with, potentially thinking about, you know, this is what, this is what I like. What do you like? How do you like for a writer to show up in a room? So uh, what was the pre-production process like for the two of you? Alicia, you've said you have a lot of strong ideas about what you think the play should be and what it should be doing and probably what it should look like. And uh, I'm just interested about the collaboration even before the actors get in the room. What's important to me pre-production is to try and give my collaborators as much as I can, <laughs> as much as they will have. So I believe in gathering what a professor of mine called in grad school dramaturgical mulch. So just like images, articles, moving images to just send to folks. And they don't have to be literal. It isn't one-to-one. So it isn't like that's what the chorus in this play feels like. It's like there's something in this video that feels right for thinking about mourning. There's something left of center about this photograph that feels akin to what I'm up to inside of this play. So it's really to sort of share as much as I can what I was reading and what I was thinking about so that they're not rudder. I mean, they're, they have their own ideas, so they're not going to be rudderless. But so that we can get as close to what I'm hoping for or what I'm up to as possible, but also saving room for their own creativity, their own genius, which I know will elevate what I'm up to anyway. 
what's fun for me about working with Alicia in, in prep is exactly what she said is she will give you everything she has. So you're not making in a vacuum. So those months and months you're spending aggregating text and images and video and research and choreographic technique and lighting color scapes and architectural shapes for design. She, because of her, you know, technical skill as an artist, not just as a writer, you know, she's able to be in a dialogue with me about what should this sound like? What should this smell like? What should it look like? And so, you know, in a very kind of Brechtian way and European way, I feel like we have a very concrete and total art making process together where there's no detail that's just left to some kind of, you know, um, bureaucratic process or random decision making. Everything that you will see on stage is something that we have crafted and curated in partnership. And I think that's very special. And does that extend to the staging as well? Are you the kind of director that likes to go into the room with sort of a first draft of what the blocking might might look like and a, you know, perhaps a bird's eye view diagram of the set and, you know, it looks like football plays or... I don't do diagrams. I really respect people who do that, but I don't do diagrams. I'll tend to do a video in the model for myself. But... You have to be willing to throw it all away. So I think the diagrams, I think sometimes that kind of director prep can get you very set in something. You're like, I'm smart. I've arrived at something. And that's very dangerous because you're, again, creating alone and you could be wrong. You could be very off intention for the writer. So I try and like prep as much as I can and do the pre-blocking, but in a way so that it doesn't hurt if things shift and I can be porous. I want to remain porous. You know what I mean? I want to be able to pivot. Uh, but when you're in the room, the first time you're staging a scene, are you like, hey, let's try this blocking that I do first and then we'll figure out what works and what doesn't work? Or or is all that just sort of prep in the back of your head and you might you, you might throw it out? And we might never see it in the room when you're working. It's a mixture of both. God, I'm giving away my secrets. Aren't, aren't you not supposed to do that? Um, it's my job. It's my job to come and get them. I'm like, wait a minute, Isaac. Okay, I think that for me, to be honest, I like a series of what I call prepared blocking and um, game work. So, like, I'll be like, let's try this. But if it's not working, you can see fast. And so I'll go through a series of games or exercises when they're working the lines and just let that shift everything. I think games are a director's friend because theater is artifice and anything that can trigger the players into actual real in-time listening because the thing is again I'm not alone Alicia creates the play and then and has her idea of it and I have my idea of it but we're forgetting one thing actors also come in with their idea of it and so sometimes that can kind of you know not be congruent with the other things that me and Alicia are cooking on and you sometimes just need to get them to listen to each other so I think gameplay is like the key. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Alicia Harris and Whitney White. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget 
giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Alicia Harris and Whitney White. One of the fascinating creative challenges about working on a new play with the writer in the room is that the writer knows maybe not the answer, but an answer to most of the questions that are going to come up in the process. And sometimes you have to just tell the actor, no, actually, this is the way or whatever. And sometimes you have to be like, I'm actually going to withhold the answer that I know because whether maybe it's the process by which they get to that answer, they'll learn a lot and the answer will 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 be truer to them. Or we might discover a new answer that's kind of great. And, and you know, I have to be open to that. I'm just wondering about how you both navigate that within the rehearsal room. I love this word, Whitney, use porous. I want to be interested in the genius of the folks that are my collaborators. Um, but there are some times when I feel like I already know if someone, if an actor poses a query that's moving in a direction that I think is going to unravel the dramaturgy, that I kind of want to just get that. <laughs> we want to like settle that, get it done so that a lot of energy isn't wasted on that because I can already see the implications of changing certain things in the writings. And that's that's been a hard learning over the years to sort of be a writer who can stick to your guns and trust what past Alicia was up to. She wasn't a fool. I know she labored over this because I was there when she was crying <laughs> about how hard it was to write the play. So if she has an idea and it's there's something in the stage direction that I don't see happening in rehearsal, I always want to try what's on the page at least a couple of times. But I don't want to abandon it because it's all this metaphor I use is a play is like a Jenga tower. When you start moving pieces out of it, and it's happened to me in the past, opening night, it doesn't resemble itself or it doesn't work. And you're like, what happened? Well, you skipped this stage direction, which meant something. You you know what I mean? This way of using language without punctuation was ignored and, and the play doesn't feel like itself. And what about for you as a director, Whitney? I mean, are, are some, some directors don't like open conversation between actors and writers in the room. Some encourage it. You know, what what's the kind of vibe of that? Honestly, I think that the level of engagement one has with a piece of art or material or text determines the blood that ends up on the stage. And the more engaged I can trick, trigger, beg, convince, force people to be on every level, the better the work is every time. It's just, I've done the process where I am the only voice. I've done the process where everyone has more stake in it and it's that process the 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 latter in which the work feels alive to me 
And that can be complex because there's a lot of voices in the room. And at the end of the day, someone has to move forward with a plan. We are doing a black epic play, okay? Like it's not an hour and 10 minutes. We are going to demand your time. And for that level of storytelling, there has to be a point in which a voice can kind of gather everyone. But I find, even though it's challenging sometimes, like I won't sit and act like it's not challenging to have another artist. And I don't even mean Alicia, because we're working again with like designers and people with ideas. Like most of the time, by the time Alicia has something to say, I'm pretty relieved. You know, I'm, I'm usually feeling a similar way. Or if we differ, it at least shells me something. It's actually kind of funny, because I feel I've had time to like, be like, Oh, yeah, I really need Alicia to say something. But now everybody got feelings, you know, because when the work is good, everybody wants to get in on the work. So that actually is more interesting. So, you know, when Alicia has something to say, that's what the room needs to hear. Your uh, musician as well, uh, Whitney, do you think musically as a director? Is it like that line doesn't have the right rhythm or, you know, the tonality isn't there or really it should be in the key of G or, you know, whatever it is. Do you do you think musically as you're directing and staging? Well, I have to say it, we're both musicians, which I feel like is probably our, the more I think about it, Alicia, the more I'm like, maybe that's our dirty secret, Mm -hmm. is like, even if we might be disagreeing over approach, there's like a way in which like, as people who are not tone deaf, deaf, we just start to feel that wasn't it. And I know we'll feel that we might have very different approaches to it, but I think Music is such a, I'm very grateful, shout out to my mom who worked overtime for all my little music lessons and whatever, and all the like horrible recitals she sat through, shout out to Janice White, I love you so much, mom. But I do think that it is my backbone because one, when you're a musician, you learn to play with others. Number two, when you're a musician, you learn how to take the solo and do harmony for someone else. Sometimes Alicia needs to be the soloist, right? Most of the time. And then you also learn how to pivot and change quickly and to just be in time with people. So I do hear things musically. It's actually not always a good thing. I feel like sometimes it also can hold me back because it can create an impatience because when you hear something and you know the way it should go and it takes the room time to get there, how do you have patience to let that happen in a natural way? So you're making this play. Where are you in the rehearsal process? right now you're staging you're we are staging we're gonna we are working towards our first pass of the text which should be on sunday we we are like i can smell the end of our first pass um and yeah we are staging away isaac we're staging away what are what are some of the big creative challenges of this part of the process specifically for me it's patience patience is a practice i'm working (laughs) to be very patient because i want to know how things will play out what the duration will be because i'm i'm open to trimming things if they need to be trimmed but i can't do that until i i see it it's also like 
when you're in rehearsals, until you see it, the, the actors and they're liberated, you know, they know what's going on, they're off book enough to go full out, you can't see the play. What you're seeing is folks working. And so again, for me right now, it's like, you just got to wait. They're working through this. They're still learning these lines. And you can sometimes see glimmers and it, you know, you get really excited, you get really juiced about it, but it's not there yet. My greatest challenge, I think, as a writer is patience. Mm. And so are you sort of holding off on rewrites until later in the process when you can kind of, as you put it, see the play? Yes. Um, so I did do some pruning a couple of weeks ago, but there are folks in the room who are resistant to me making <laughs> a lot of changes. I mean, I have a lot of questions, Isaac, that I think are sort of personal and sociopolitical about um, the length of the play. And it's related to, like, I've seen these epics that are white-centered, and this is a Black play that's asking people to sit still and look at these Black people and listen to their stories for a long time. So I wonder if my, and I'm also an impatient person, so there's a lot going on. It's like on the one end is Alicia, who sort of has this internal sense of urgency that's a little nuts to other people. And on the other end, there's Alicia, who maybe needs to just, like, slow down and let people sit through this, make them sit through this. That's political to say you will sit and look at these black people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I'm really, um, I'm really just trying to give myself grace around that, but be a good writer and writing is rewriting. And if there are things inside of this work that aren't moving the story forward, that feel ornamental, then they need to be trimmed. And I don't want to be afraid to do that, but that's a hard thing to judge. Um, But I do have wonderful, you know, folks like Whitney who are very much like you wrote this beautiful thing, like don't trim the thing, you know. This is so the opposite of how you hear about it normally going down where the director is like, this thing is too long. And the writer's like, I must preserve my precious words. But it sounds like that dynamic is totally flipped. and, And Whitney, you're the one fighting to preserve the precious words. I'm like, wait a minute, I really love this line. But I also, you know, I have to trust Alicia and that because it it does tend to be my tendency. Because, like, look, you got to humble yourself. If this lady spent nine years on her play, who am I who's been dealing with it for only two or three years or any actor who's only been dealing with it for a year or less to be like, let's not. And so I tend to, like prefer us going as long as possible to see what's there because of the labor that was involved. You know, uh, when we have guests here on Working who work in collaborative art forms, we, I, I always ask this question about when collaboration breaks down or when there's disagreement and how you navigate it. And this is our first time I get to ask that question of two collaborators at once who have a, a very close collaboration over several years now. So, When your collaboration breaks down or when there's a disagreement that you're having trouble navigating, when there's conflict, which is inevitable in any collaboration, good, bad, or indifferent, right? Um, How do you get through it? How do you work through it? What have you learned particularly about working with each other that helps you navigate that? I think that our disagreements have been good ones because they point to something. There's something going on that isn't working. And I trust Whitney. And some of this is just building with time and building a rapport. At this point, we've worked, as you said, together for years. If she and I are disagreeing about something, there's something there. This is a smart woman who isn't just, she's just not just trying to get her way. It isn't ego led. She's really invested in the art being as good as it can be. I I find that our sort of cycle inside of disagreement 
is we disagree. And then I, we both kind of go away, have an, a moment of what feels like, and she can speak to this herself, go away, have a moment of like, but she could be right. Like she could be right. And so we come back and give each other grace around, but we can try your thing or let's see your thing or, you know, trying to articulate what it is that we're up to and make sure the other is okay. But we don't just argue uh, it doesn't feel like it's coming from a sort of this is what I wrote and that's what it is. It always goes back to dramaturgy. And she's never like, this is what I want and that's the picture that's a better picture. It's always this is what it does. What about you, Anne? No, I agree with all that. And then I also try and just like root back, like, what is my job in this moment? And that can help me. And what am I excellent at? And what do I know Alicia to be excellent at? And a lot of time there's overlap. And if it's something that's more in her wheelhouse and pertains to her her story in a particular way, I'll try it that way first. And if it's something that relates to like body and space, I'll maybe fight for my idea more. But a lot of the times what's good is it's like, we are seeing the same little pothole, the same little flaw, you know. Um, but I do think it's about listening and being honest. Like, I didn't spend nine years writing this play. I did spend several w- years thinking about embodiment and space. But it's like, you've got to, I think the new, having just written my own little musical piece, like, you have to, and being on the other side of it, it's like, no one has put the time in more than my writer. And sometimes it's my job to fight for what she wants to see on stage mm-hmm. and to put that up to the best of my ability, you know? Because nine years on a piece of work, I mean, what relationships even last that long these days? If you really think about that kind of commitment to a work, you've got to humble yourself in front of that. I think, though, that although I worked on it for nine years, my hope is to be someone who can be humble as well and say, I worked on this for nine years and I have a particular perspective. And there are other folks who are going to have another perspective that's going to embolden what I've done. And there are other sets of eyes that are going to help. I mean, there are a lot of like heavy, as she said, the folks in this room are incredible. There's a lot of strong ideas and a a lot of strong minds. So I hope, and this is a tricky balance in the thing that you don't learn in grad school, to be fierce about my work, but also be a good collaborator and take care of these other artists who were trying to interpret this monster that I've written. I mean, monster in a good way, you know, and it's just, and, and how to disagree. I didn't have that course in grad school, you know, how do you disagree with your collaborator and stay cool and still be speaking to one another by opening night? Yeah. I didn't have that class in grad school either. Well, Alicia Harris, Whitney White, thank you so much for joining us this week on Working to Talk About Your Process. Thank you, Isaac. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Isaac, again, I absolutely love this conversation. It was just such a fantastic match of great guests and a host who knows their creative world really well. And apart from anything else, I absolutely have to go and see on Sugarland now because it sounds amazing. But the section about how they each knew they wanted to work together was really fascinating for me. So starting with director Whitney White's side of things, she talked about how she got to know Alicia's work on the page 
by reading her plays. Now, anyone who reads will recognize, you know, that feeling of connecting with a writer's work, but it seems particularly important for a director to have that conversation with the writer whose work they're going to be interpreting for the stage. So, when you were directing, did you find any particularly strong bonds with writers and did it feel different from that like, oh, I enjoy this writer, I'm going to be reading them for a long time? Is it different? Yeah, well, you know, when I was really focused on directing in my 20s, it was, it, a lot of it was really focused on the writers and what they were writing. I, I did almost exclusively new plays and I just mm. loved that thrill of discovery and the, the tight bond that you form with a writer as you become simpatico with their work. Um to me, that feeling, sorry, I'm just feeling, I'm, I'm like yeah. having a memory of that feeling right now, but it, it's when you read the text and then you're immediately seeing in your head how you would stage it or, or a visual idea for it. That's when I would know that it's like, oh, our, our souls have met here. You yeah. know, that didn't happen with every play I directed, you know, there, that, that, or that might happen later in the process, but every now and then you would read a script and it just boom, the staging would start to appear. You know, um, this writer, Clay McLeod Chapman, who's one of my best friends, he introduced me to my wife. But, you know, one time he just sent me a play that he was working on for a commission. And he was like, oh, what do you think of this? And I could literally just see the whole thing in my head from page wow. one, you know, and I just thought I have to do this. And I immediately called him. I was like, I have to do this. You have to get me involved. And I've actually directed that play, which is called Volume of Smoke. I've directed it several times uh, professionally and at a college and stuff like that, working with him. And so it, it's an incredible feeling and very difficult to describe because I've never really felt it that strongly uh, anywhere else. Wow. Wow. I feel quite emotional. Um, that feels like that was in a platonic situation, that was such a romantic image. I mean, what a like th that sort of transcendence. Like that's that's the dream, right? I, I, I'm I'm very envious of what you just described. Yeah, I mean, it it, it there is something romantic about it, and I don't yeah. mean that in a light. Yeah, it's you know, I, it's I'm platonic. not gonna run off with Clay, but but, yeah. <laughs> but there is something of just like it is about love. You know, it is yeah. that there is a feeling of love and excitement when you find a, a, a play that you feel that way about. And then. On the other side, when the writer is looking to find a director to collaborate with, it's maybe even harder to get a sense of how they're going to make yeah. their take their work. And especially if you like someone and you admire their work and you really want to be involved in something like when you were in that position, were you aware of trying to woo writers oh, when yeah. you really wanted to work with them? People often talk about those early meetings with writers as being like dates. You know, you have your first date with a writer over coffee to sort of feel each other out and talk about the play. I, I do think those early meetings do have that similar sense of kind of, uh, you know, figuring out what's going on with the other person. And But like Whitney said, just like in dating, <laughs> yeah. I think the best thing you can do is be actually open and honest with the person you're meeting with and not try to trick them into thinking you're something other than you're not. You know, when I would meet with writers... I'm not trying to impress them. That's mm. not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to razzle dazzle them. You're trying to clearly communicate. This is the kind of artist I am. This is what I see doing with your play. Is that something you are interested in? And if they say, no, that's not something I'm interested in. It, I mean, that, that stinks when it's a play yeah. that you really yeah. like, but at the same time, it's like better to know that then than four weeks into the process when you're at each other's throats. And from the writer's <laughs> perspective, it's really complicated because a director can be good at lots of stuff and still, you know, they could be bad at staging, for example. Like, mm, you could have yeah. that coffee with a director and they could be like, here's how I see your play. I would like to develop it with you, blah, 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 blah. And you could discover they have no visual imagination or they, they don't know how to take the ideas they have and actually realize them. And so I think that's why it's important that Whitney had a lot of people to vouch for her. 
Yeah, wow. Another thing I learned that challenged ideas that I got from movies and TV is that the director doesn't walk in on day one uh, with a fixed plan and where she just lays out for the actors what they're going to do. It's much more collaborative. And Whitney talked about game work. What does that mean? And why is it good to have that level of uncertainty when the play is already written and the tickets are already being sold? Why is that good? (laughs) Well, it should be said that some directors do walk in like that. And traditionally, Mm. you know, in fact, uh, pre the method in many ways, that is very much what the The director was doing. You know, um, uh, that is one of the things that I talk about the transformation of that in the book itself. So (laughs) the idea is if I don't dictate to you how you're going to get to the result or even maybe what the result is, I can just tell you what the question is, but not what the answer is. And we are exploring Mm. this together. Whatever we come up with might not be the idea I had in mind, but you will have a more full investment in it and it will be a more creative solution and it will be more original and interesting and better or whatever. I mean, it's clear that Whitney White walks into the rehearsal room with very clear ideas about staging and very clear ideas about interpretation. She's not just making it up, Mm -hmm. but there's room for the actors to find themselves and to come up with their own ideas and to bring the fullness of who they are to the fore. Game work is one of the ways to do that. Game work is kind of what it sounds like. It's playing games in the rehearsal room. It's doing exercise and improvisations. Maybe you're even tossing the old beanbag around. Um, It's all the stuff you do that's not directly working on the text. And it can have a lot of different uses. Sometimes it's just about building the ensemble, getting people used to playing off each other, having fun together, liking each other, you know, bond because you don't have a lot of time. Um, Sometimes it's about just letting everyone know that they are in an environment of play and discovery where their impulses are valid and they can be open and vulnerable and imaginative. And sometimes it's about, you know, those games are shaped in a way so that they are maybe a more intuitive and less literal angle into something the actors need to be able to do to do the play. And it should be said that some actors really fucking hate playing theater games. You know, there's plenty of actors out there who are like, I am a professional. I am an adult. I studied a long time to do this. I've been doing this for a long time. I know what I'm doing and I don't need to walk around with a playing card on my head um, (laughs) that tells me what my status is in the scene. I want to just get to work. So, you know, one time my assistant directed a play where the director went into theater games the first week and half the cast of the play revolted and the play never recovered from it. Half the cast of the play just decided that this meant that he was a kid who didn't know what he was doing. And they basically wouldn't take direction in a meaningful sense from him from then on out. And the the play kind of collapsed as a result. Yikes. Now, let me say... That was, they shouldn't have done that. Do you know what I mean? Yes, like I'm not, yes, yes, yes. I'm, just, I, I, I'm saying, I'm just saying like, you know, some people really don't like game work and get, yeah. get very, you know, yeah. bad things can come out of it. Yeah. So everybody has to collaborate in other words. Yep. So it was also really striking to hear how many years all the various collaborators have spent on this project. If you include the writer, the director, the actors, it adds up to decades devoted yeah. to a project. And when the play opens, which will be very soon, it's scheduled to run for about six weeks. That blows my mind. I mean, I know you just spent years writing a book that just appeared, but in the performing arts, it just feels so out of whack in terms of the preparation time to the out in the world time ratio. Or am I missing something here? You are not missing something. I was putting my head in my hands while you were <laughs> describing this problem because this is one of the reasons why I now write prose, June. Oh, my God. <laughs> you really have to make your peace with the 
ineffability and the ephemeralness of theater if you're going to make a life in it. You have to find meaning and beauty in the fact that it's so temporary and then it fades into mist. Because it's not only that the show has a six-week run, it's that every night's performance is going to be at least a little bit different and not preserved, Mm. right? Yeah, yeah. Historically, theaters had a repertory system. So a play would not have a long run and then never be seen again. It would have a very short run and then it would be brought back once a year, once every few months to be performed again. Uh, And it would enter the repertory, sort of like an opera. But we Mm. don't do that now. And uh, and honestly, it's such a problem. It is so heartbreaking. Um, Mm. If you're a playwright, you get to see that play hopefully yeah. done a few, hopefully other people will license it. It'll have a future life. You might work on it with other directors just to see what there is to be discovered. But particularly for the director, you know, once the final production you're involved with closes and you're not, it's, it's really heartbreaking. Wow. Okay. So before we go, I know you spent many years as a theater director. It's very clear from your answers here uh, before you shifted your focus to writing and Again, having just heard about a production that really respected the years that a creator had devoted to a project, I'm curious how you feel about the years you spent directing. I mean, on one level, I want to know if you miss it, but also having moved away, do you have any regrets about the time that you invested into developing those skills when it's no longer the thing that you're most focused on? You know, when I meet a young prose writer who's more accomplished than me... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I definitely feel that way sometimes of like, Ugh. oh, how did I waste all this time? You know, you know what it's like, right? Yeah, um, yeah. You get a little professional jealousy, you get a little. Mm-hmm. Um, but to answer it more seriously, I go back and forth on whether I regret that or not, whether it would have been better had I realized that the path my life would have taken was to prose writing earlier so I could get a jump on it. But I do think that there's all sorts of things I learned as a theater director that I bring to my prose writing that make mm-hmm. me a better writer and a more individual and a more unique writer yeah as to whether i miss it or not i miss it so much june Mm. i miss being in a room with people and collaborating and building something together i miss the particular way of thinking through problems and ideas and text that theater requires you know and i think also think you know i took having taken a few years off from it and spent those years doing this sort of deep research process into the history of of western theater i think i would be better at it now than i mm. was then so i do hope to do it again and i have some little things slowly developing and maybe they'll happen and maybe they won't but this is the thing i don't miss i don't miss everything that surrounds the art itself i don't miss working for months on something and then something mysterious goes wrong in the last week of rehearsal and the play is ruined and it's never as good as you thought it would be and everyone thinks you're a chump i really don't miss that if you're a theater director, you can't really do your work and be creative without all these other people buying yeah. into it and working with you uh, or the hustle for work in between when you have nothing physical, tangible to show for it. So yeah. I do love the theater. It is also a hard life. It's time consuming. There's no money in it. And it <laughs> requires a lot of trust and a lot of vulnerability and a really thick skin. And so anyone who's still dedicating themselves to it at this point, I really admire those people because I, I do miss that part of it. Man, as soon as we're finished, I'm going to go and buy some theater tickets because now I'm like, what a world. What what, what, what beauty and, and love they must have for this thing that is so difficult. We hope, listeners, that you have enjoyed the show. If you have, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and that way you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like How to Do It and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. 
To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Alicia Harris and Whitney White and to our fabulous producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with New Yorker writer Rebecca Mead, who has a new book out about moving back to Britain after more than 30 years in the United States. Did she learn to drive on the other side of the street or not? (laughs) You will find out next week. Until then, get back to work. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.